Thank you for your worship this morning. If you've got your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to take a, uh, just a two-week break in the book of Colossians. Uh, as many of you uh, know, or uh, if you're just coming back, this would be good for you to know, uh, we have entered into a season where we are receiving nominations uh, for new elders that would come in uh, and serve uh, with our existing elders. And let me say a couple of things about that. Uh, if you're new uh, to Travis, several years ago, uh, our church entered into a uh, just a self-reflective study on how we function, what our church polity is, and how we wanted to go about uh, really governing the church for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. At the conclusion of that study, the recommendation was that we would change our governance to move into what's known as just simply a plurality of elders that would serve together and alongside each other uh, with varying functions at different times. And so the church agreed to do that. Per those bylaws that exist within our governing policies, Every two to three years, uh, we are supposed to receive nominations uh, of men that are capable and called to serve, that the congregation uh, would bring them to the table, and then our elders would enter into a season over the next few months, uh, examining them, uh, talking with them, speaking to them, and then making sure they meet the requirements uh, per scripture, not just our bylaws. Now, uh, I realize uh, as we've already begun the process of receiving those uh, just this past week, I thought it would be helpful if this Sunday and then the following Sunday, uh, we look at what God requires and what he wants from the men that he would call to serve. One of the very first things that I want you to hear this morning is it is a God-ordained structure that God gives for his church. And there is a way in which God designed the church to function. And he creates this plurality that exists there to shepherd alongside one another, to guard and to care for you and your needs as your shepherd. Now, I, I'm one of those elders that serve, and my official title is lead teaching pastor. Not really sure what that means. Been here for three years, still hadn't figured that out. All of our guys teach, all of our guys engage, and all of our guys bring something significant to the table. And so I want us to look at Paul writing a letter to a young pastor and a young leader who was in the process of calling elders and, and distinguishing elders in his church. And so Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he gives Timothy some guidance and he says, listen, Timothy, if you're going to call men, these are the requirements and these are the things that you're going to look for. And the reason why it's important for you to know these things or to be reminded of these things is because you're going to send us names of men. And we want to make sure that, that the recommendations that you give, that you're equipped to understand what the Word of God says, and that you send us men from amongst you that sit behind you, in front of you, and to your right and to your left, that are God-called men that meet the biblical criteria as laid out in the Word of God. And so I want us to begin in reading in verse 1, where this is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded and self-controlled. He must be respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For as someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
And one of the things that I hope to accomplish today is really twofold amongst you. Number one is that we would understand the biblical terminology that exists with here within God's word. And we would lay that criteria next to the men that we would recommend to come and to lead. And so uh, that's first and foremost. But secondly is, a, is an applicable one that applies to every single one in here, both male and female. You see, the details that we see that exist within this text, the characteristics and the traits, every single one of us, with, with, expect, with respect to a few of these, ought to lay our own lives in, in front of these. And so when it talks about the elders being this kind of person and this kind of man, this is the kind of person we, we really all should aspire to be, whether or not we ever become an elder or a pastor or a bishop or an overseer. It gives us a, a way forward of, of what we should be looking for and, and striving to, because ultimately these things ultimately point to the person and to the work of Jesus. In leadership and church ministry, now more than ever, it matters. And the way that leadership goes, so goes the church. And God has designed in his goodness to have leaders who would grace and adorn the gospel. They would do that before the people that they're entrusted with. They would do that before the people that they come into contact with that are far from him. Now I'll say one thing about our structure and the way that we articulate it, because I, I think it's helpful in understanding what we're looking for are men that do not run necessarily the day-to-day -day operations of the church. And the reason why I say that is because most all the men, with the exception of me, they, they have day jobs and they work 40 and 50 and 60 hours a week. And so it would be quite impractical and virtually impossible to have a group of elders come and to run the day-to-day -day of the church. So what do our elders do? Well, the way that we like to describe it to people is we simply say it like this, that we are an elder-driven but staff-led church. Elders drive the vision. We drive the, the mission of, of who we are. We, we contend for the values and the culture that exists with inside this church organization. That is our first and foremost, our, our primary responsibility. We drive that vision. And then in God's goodness over time, what he's done for over a hundred years is he's allowed us to call men and women who are experts in their field who have been qualified in so many different ways. And, and we come to the table and we say, listen, uh, I went to school to be a pastor. I don't know a whole lot about college ministry. And so I wanna go find the most qualified and equipped college minister that I can. And we go find Matt Getty and we say, Matt, what do you need? Here's our vision, here's our mission. And then we wanna turn Matt loose to be the expert in accomplishing the vision as it pertains to the context of college. We did that with Donald Jackson in our student ministry and so on and so forth. We want to empower them and to send them out. And our job is just to make sure that we're staying in line with that vision that God has given us. And so we ask those questions before our staff regularly. But notice what Paul does. Beginning in verse one, he says, this saying is trustworthy. Reminding them of this simple truth that, that these characteristics and these qualities and these goals that we're going to lay out for these qualified men, these are, these are true statements that God has given in his goodness and in his kindness to the church. That there's a way in which and, and, and who it is that, that is leading it, it deeply matters. He says, anyone who aspires to the office of overseer, he desires something that is noble. In other words, to put it this way, uh, we don't take men that we have to twist their arms and, and grab them by the hand and pull them along and say, we really want you to serve in this way and they're hesitant in some way or I don't know. And, 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 and maybe if you, if you do this and there's some kind of ulterior motivation, no, he says, listen, if you aspire to it, 
to aspire to the, to the role of overseer, not for some ill-gotten gain, not for some sense of control so that you can change something in the, in the life of your church that you don't like, but, but rather you aspire to serve and you aspire to shepherd the people that God has put in front of you. To serve in the ways and, and to lead in the, in the purposes of the kingdom. Now I want to go seminary on you for just a second because he says this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. And what we mean by that is within the Greek New Testament, there are really three interchangeable terms that are used for what we call elders. And we see it here in this text. He uses the phrase overseer. This also translates in other translations as, as the bishop. And, and this was a group of guys that, that functioned as elders within the early New Testament church. And they, they would oversee the overall welfare and the care for the people that God had called to these churches. But we also see phrases and use these phrases interchangeably, words like pastor. Now there's only one instance in the book of Ephesians where it refers to the, the term pastor as someone would, who would hold a church office. More often than not, the term pastor is used in the context of, of pastoring or shepherding people or shepherding sheep as the biblical language connotes. And so pastor and, and overseer are used interchangeable, but then there's also the phrase elder that, that we have chosen to identify and to use, the presbyteros that, that exists there, the presbyter, uh, the one who would, who would stand together alongside other group of men and, and he would accomplish and, and see to the welfare and the shepherding and the care and the nurture that is required of God's sheep. And then he goes on in verse two, and this is where he gets, begins to get specific. He says, this elder, this pastor, this bishop, this overseer, all the same, must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He, he must be sober-minded. He must be self-controlled and respectable. He must be hospitable and he must be able to teach. The phrase above reproach is the overarching theme that exists and all the other things that we see below that. And it means so much as in the way that he lives his life, he, he gives no concern or reason for others to think badly of him or to think badly of the church. He lives in, in such a way that, that he points people to the worthiness of God and the worthiness of his gospel. There's nothing about his character or reputation that would exist that would harm his ministry or that would harm the church that he serves in. This man must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. Most literally in the Greek, all that's there in this moment, in this text, it is literally to be translated out. He is faithful to his wife. He is a one woman man. He's a one woman man. To put it a different way, does his marriage to his wife, does it display the beauty and the excellencies of the gospel? Does it point to the worthiness of Christ by how he treats her in public, how he treats her in private? Does the way that she treats him display it as well at home and in private? All of these things working together, is he faithful to the woman that he is married to? And does his marriage point to the beauty of the realities of the gospel? You know, this is one of the primary purposes of our marriages is that we would use our marriages to point people to the worthiness of Christ. And so this man must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He, he must be sober-minded. 
He exercises control and is a master of his appetites. He, he prizes freedom in Christ, yet he understands that he's not going to be held in bondage to any sin. Nothing is going to control him. Nothing is going to captivate him except who Jesus is. He is sober-minded in all that he does. He is self-controlled. In other words, he is a sensible person. He's reasonable. He's easy to talk to, he's easy to get along with, and, and perhaps I think even most importantly, he's easy to, to disagree with. He is agreeable in his disagreeableness. That he's not so stubborn and hard-headed that everything becomes a battle or a, or a war in which he must occupy certain ground. He is self-controlled in all that he does. He displays good judgment. He, he sees things how they really are. He's a man that comes to the table and he goes, well, that's one side of it in conflict. Now let me talk to the other person and get their side of the conflict. And then let's find the truth somewhere oftentimes that exists in between those two things. He is a reasonable, sober-minded, self-controlled, person. He is respectable. There's a sense of, of honor about him, but it's not a prideful honor. It's a humble honor in the way in which he carries himself. He, he's dignified at times. He, he understands not to step on toes unnecessarily. He, he, he understands that more often than not, the best way to, to try to get the knots out in people and in relationships is to do everything you can to untie the knot before you have to cut it. People who are not sober-minded and, and who are not respectable, who are not self-controlled, who are not above reproach, they go around to every conflict that exists. And conflict exists in all relationships. It exists within all churches. And the non-sober-minded person is the contentious person that's always trying to cut the rope rather than untie it. How do I salvage the relationship? How do I seek reconciliation between the two brothers or between the two sisters? How do I mend the fences that exist in that moment? He's respectable. It says he's hospitable. This is a man with a proven track record of, of loving strangers. He is given to, to being kind to, to those that would be new and, and he would show hospitality to them. He, he brings alongside the hurting and the, and the wounded. He, he shares his home and he shares meals with, with people regularly. When, they, when he walks into the room with them, he gives them their complete and undivided attention. He's a man who looks them in the eyes. He's not fiddling with his phone on the side as someone's trying to have a conversation with him. He shows and displays hospitality before them and he makes them feel as if they they are the most important person in the room. And so he practices that gift of hospitality. He loves those strangers. He doesn't shrink back from having gas, but he also must be in the midst of all that, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. He must be able to teach. In the Greek, it says that he engages in a, in a regular pattern, or most scholars would contend that, that this man, he deeply loves the word of God, and he deeply, listen to me, he deeply loves teaching the word of God. He's passionate about it. It may not be his, his vocation, but it's the thing that, that he enjoys doing. He, he loves going before God's word in his personal time and, and having devotions with him. And then he eagerly looks forward to regularly spewing out all of the knowledge and all of the understanding that he's got as he comes before his people. He must be an individual that, that knows biblical doctrine well and, and is able to explain it in ways that, that everybody at the table from two and three and four years old can understand and that those who are 70 and 80 and some somewhere in between can get something from that simple truth. 
He's a man who must be able to teach and passionate about God's word. And the reason that I believe that he says that, and we'll talk more about this next week, is because he is a man who is able to, to hear even the slightest thing that would speak falsely about the doctrine. The slightest and most subtle thing that, that would exist there in that moment. He has to know the word of God. In this day and age, this is far more imperative maybe than it's ever been because of all the ideas and all the philosophies and all the things that are being taught in culture, as we watch television, as we listen to podcasts, as we look into our cities and our states, all of the things that are being contended for. This man has to know the word of God front and back. And he doesn't have to have a, a seminary degree to, to do that. Although it, it's helpful at times for those that are calling, but, it, but it's not the thing that ultimately qualifies you. We have some of the most intellectually astute and biblically grounded people that exist in this church, and they have never not once been to seminary. But you know what distinguishes them from their vocation and what they do? They, they are still students of God's word. They still read the church fathers. They, they still read theology. They still read systematic books and biblical theology books. And, and they read church history. They, they understand these things and they put together. You can ask them questions about soteriology. You can ask them questions about Christology. You can ask them questions about the Trinity or the end times. And there's an opinion in the, in the midst of all of those things because these men, they, they know and they understand the word of God and they can explain it. Paul goes on later in the book of 1 Timothy and he says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. This elder, this overseer, verse three, he must not be a drunkard, must not be violent, but gentle, not be quarrelsome and not a lover of money. This phrase, not a drunkard, it's really meant, I think, to be read under that self-controlled description that we got. That if you're not full of, of God's spirit and you're allowing yourself to be, to be moved in a way where you're, you're given and gained to, to much wine or, or to much drink, that you're not being controlled by the spirit of God. A man cannot be controlled by the spirit if he is inebriated by something else. And so Paul says he cannot be a drunkard. He cannot be violent. He must be gentle. He can't be belligerent. His, his temper has to be under control. He's a man that, that understands that, that he has a bent towards not quarrels and fighting. He has a bent towards reconciliation and gentleness. He doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeves where, where he overreacts to everything, but rather he walks. Now, at the same time, let me say this. It's also a man that is not afraid to get into the battle and to get into the conflict if necessary. It's a man that, that doesn't enjoy the conflict and doesn't enjoy uh, uh, the, the quarrelsome behavior, but he's a man that is, that is peaceable. He, he is lowly in his demeanor, not speaking much of his achievements, not bragging about that, but really a man who, who not being violent and gentle, but rather being not quarrelsome either. He is a man who, who pursues peace and pursues reconciliation with others. He goes on and he says, this man must not be a lover of money. He puts the kingdom of God at first and all he does, his lifestyle doesn't reflect this uh, overt lifestyle of, of luxury and, and, and too much indulgence. He's, he's generous in his, in his giving, he's faithful in that giving. He's not anxious about his financial future. He doesn't allow presidential elections or midterms every four years or two years and the rumors about the economy and all of those things to sway him or to knock him off of his pedestal in some way. Why? Because his hope is in the Lord ultimately. 
He stewards his money well and he, and he gives that money well and he's faithful in those things and he makes wise investments, all of those things necessary and absolutely true. But in the end, he recognizes that his love is not in the things and the possessions that he has, but rather in his relationship with the Lord and shepherding his church. Verse four, he says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, uh, in the time frame in which his children are under his authority in his house. One of the ways that, that we perhaps may differ from time to time is an understanding that there are several groups of theologians and pastors that would contend and make an argument that if, a, if an older child walks away from the Lord at, at 18 or 19 and they become the prodigal son, if you will, that they're automatically disqualified from serving in the position as an elder. I don't hold that to be true because you find that nowhere in Scripture, especially explicitly that exists. And, and sometimes that happens. And so what this most literally means is while they are under the authority in the household of the parent, of the dad, what do those relationships look like? How is that house ordered? Understanding that we don't expect their kids to be perfect. And the truth is, they're the kids of, of pastors and the kids of elders, they, they didn't ask to be kids of pastors and elders. That was just the thing that they were given. And here it goes, and you've got to adapt, and you've got to do it. But there is a sense of, of order and mutual respect that exists within the relationship. One theologian goes so far as to even say that the home is where we are meant to look for the qualifications of the elder. And how they manage that and, and examine that. Because it's one thing to display something in public. It's another thing to be someone else when nobody else is around except your family. He must not be, verse 5, he must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He, he truly follows Christ, but, but there is evidence in his life that this takes a season of time to, to sort of marinate and to cultivate. There is a gospel-centered humility that exists within his life. That he's been seasoned enough that he's, he's gone through really hard things and he's come out better and more Christ-like. He's, he's had really easy seasons and he didn't float and he didn't drift off into apathy, but he kept pursuing Christ and kept becoming more and more like Jesus. There's a season of maturity that must exist in the life of the elder as he comes. Otherwise, he would fall into condemnation. Verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. My favorite way of determining this is um, when prospective elders at our previous church come in and we go through a process, we, we do something really simple uh, that, that is also very insightful. We get permission ahead of time, but we call some of his coworkers and we ask some of his coworkers, hey, uh, we know so-and-so works for you. We're, we're examining him in a process to become an elder at our church. And uh, we know that y'all don't believe the same things, but tell me what kind of guy he is in the workplace. Do you like him? Is he, is he well thought of by, by you? Is he well thought of by his other coworkers? Does he, does he get along with them? Or does he have this air of superiority? Does he, does he wear Christ in the wrong way? And tell us what you think of him. You work with him every day and, and we let them talk. And, and we've had instances where the guys who, who deeply do not know the Lord respond back with four letter words. I love this guy. He'll be a great pastor. Can you tell me what a pastor actually is? And you say, he's just a shepherd. He, we're calling him to, to teach and, and to care for our people. Does he care for you? Must be well thought of by the, by the outsider. 
He meets the standards of the world for, for decency. He meets the standards of the world for respectability. But most importantly, he meets that decency and that respectability according to God's word. He, he acts the same at church on Sunday that he does on Monday morning when he goes into the bank. Or when he goes into the school. Or when he goes into his business. He's the same person. And so, church, we are at a moment in our history where we're looking for men that meet this criteria. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge because so much of this can become so legalistic so quick. It can become self-righteous so quick. And, and discerning that and trying to apply that and to walk in humility and, and grace with all that is extremely difficult and challenging. So as you, as you recommend, if you love your elders that serve now, be thoughtful in who you send us. Be thoughtful in, in who you recommend. Examine. Maybe, maybe you need to go sit with them and, and walk through this and ask them some of these things. You may have seen them at church for 20 years, but what are they like out in the community? And you can help us in the midst of that. And maybe there's something in there that you're like, you're not ready. Years ago at our previous church, we went through a, a process of this. And I may have told this story uh, last week or to the other, other service, but uh, we went through a process. A guy was nominated to come on uh, to our elder group. And after talking with him, we just sensed there were some things in his life that just weren't quite right and he wasn't quite ready. And we said, we don't think you're ready yet. We want you to work on these things and do these things and we'll help you and we'll come alongside you. And, and he left that meeting and he went and packed his family up and they just left the church. But it was helpful for us because it helped us sort of see some motivation behind the heart. That he, he wanted control and, and wanted to be in a position of, of, of power and authority over things. And, and so the heart behind all of this with our elders that come on is that we really, though the, the New Testament gives us the title of elder, we, we don't care about the title of elder. It's not about identity and finding identity in those things. It's about God's people recognizing the men that are here that would call and, and that would one day, according to Hebrews 13, are going to stand account and they're going to stand before the Lord and they're going to give an account for every decision they made, every word they said, every lesson they taught. And friends, that is terrifying to me that we will stand before the Lord on that day. And so what I want us to do to conclude is I want to remind us of two truths. Number one, it's important for you to know this list and understand this list because you're responsible for bringing these names to us. But secondly, as, as you take this list and, and you, you, you put it on your own life and you say, uh, how in my life do I need to, to be more hospitable? How in my life do I need to be more self-controlled, uh, sober-minded? How in my life uh, do, do I need to be above reproach? Are there areas in my life that I'm not above reproach that I need to examine? Am I well thought of by, by outsiders in my workplace, on social media? What is it they think about me? And is what they think about me, does it ultimately lead them to, to seeing the worthiness and to seeing the glory? glory of our Lord Jesus. To not see me, but to see him. Because he is the one that is worthy. He is the name that is above all names. He is the only one that is worthy of our affections and our times and, and our, our study and our labor and our toil. He alone is worthy of those things. 